Good morning, everyone. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read from the middle of verse 20 through verse 21. These are the words of the angel to Joseph in a dream. Middle of verse 20, Holy Scripture says, Joseph, son of David, do not, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reliable word of God that directs our hearts and minds to you and that steadies us and steadies our hearts in this unsteady world. And Father, I pray that in our time in the Word this morning, that you would impress this good news of a Savior upon our hearts and use it to transform our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Title this sermon, Jesus Our Savior, a simple and yet very important reminder of what the glory of Christmas and really the glory of the gospel is all about. We are saturated with bad news. It's bad news all around us. Political, economic, cultural, personal. Sometimes it's very personal. There's really bad news. There's fake bad news that nevertheless stirs people up and gets people all full of angst. And there's fake good news. But this morning, I'm here to proclaim real, rock-solid good news. And we just, we just saw the word uh, tidings up there on the screen. Good news, glad tidings just pervades the, the, the Christmas narrative. The, the angel brings good news to Zechariah. The angel brings glad tidings to Mary. The angel brings good news of great joy to the shepherds in the field. And here in Matthew chapter 1, the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and had for him good news. What, what, is, what is the good news? I'd like to just back up just a little bit. Psalm 97 verse 1 says, the Lord reigns. That's, that's the foundation of the good news, is that the Lord is reigning supreme over all things, and he leverages his power and might for the good of his people. 
It says in Psalm 97 that the Lord preserves the lives of his people and that he delivers his people from the hand of the wicked. And if you are in the hand of the wicked, if you are in a situation of opposition and persecution, you certainly do need the Lord to deliver you. And yet what's remarkable as we, as we ponder today's passage is that our, our greatest need for deliverance is not from the hand of the wicked or from anything outside of us. Our, our greatest problem is that which arises from within us, namely our own sin. And here we see that the Lord in his sovereign rule is determined to save his people from their own sins. So I'm going to walk through this passage kind of in, in three, three simple steps. Uh, a son is born, the son is named, and the son's name reveals the son's mission. So let's just jump right in. <clears throat> a son is born. A son, a son is to be born. A son is given. Remember that language from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that unto us a, a child is born and a son is given? And the, the context of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, makes it very clear in a very special and pronounced way that this son is especially given. I mean, in one sense, of course, since God is the creator of all human beings, there's a sense in which he, every son is given. <laughs> but, but, but this son is no ordinary son. And in order to call attention to the uniqueness and the specialness of this son, God acted in a very unique way. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. That was a legally binding relationship, stronger than what we think of in terms of engagement. It was legally binding and enforceable. But Prior to their coming together in the fullness of marriage, Mary was found to be with child. And in the normal course of things, if a woman is found to be with child outside of wedlock, then there's only a few explanations for that, and none of them are really good. And so Joseph had just cause to divorce Mary, and that's what he intended to do. But the fact of the matter is, is that Joseph didn't have his facts straight. Something unusual was going on. And so, if you look there in the beginning of verse 20, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary, Mary had not been unfaithful. In fact, just the opposite. M Mary had faithfully received the word of the Lord and submitted to that word and had lifted up a, a wonderful song of praise uh, in, in, in response to the Lord's grace to her. But think about this from Joseph's perspective. 
if you know that your bride-to-be is with child, not through ordinary generation by the involvement of a husband and a husband's will, but rather by the supernatural power of God working independently of any man, then you know something big is going on here. This, this son is given. God obviously intends this son to be born at this time in this place as part of this family. This is not something that has been engineered by men. Mankind did not decide that now is a good time for the Messiah to come. Joseph did not agree to the arrangement. He was simply told what was going to happen. And if you read Luke chapter 1, it's obvious that Mary didn't agree to the arrangement either. She was, just, she was told what was going to happen, and she submitted to it. But it's the, the very nature of the virgin conception, the, the supernatural power of God conceiving this boy in the womb, just it directs our attention to this one is special and uniquely God sent to accomplish something very important. Pay attention. A son is given. Second, the son is named. It says there in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. In the Bible, names are very important. As we've been going through Genesis, we've seen God God changed Abram's name to Abraham. God changed Sarai's name to Sarah. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. God named Ishmael. God named Isaac. And, and, and you see this over and over again. It's, it's, not as if, it's not as if every human being's name carries massive theological freight, but... Names are important, and, 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 and sometimes God steps into the storyline in a very unique and special way in order to name or rename someone, and that name does carry significant theological freight. Never more so than in this case of you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, and that name is, uh, is, is very revealing. Joshua comes from two Hebrew words, one being Yahweh, the name of God, and the other being Yasha, which means delivers or saves. And so, so the name Joshua, Jesus being the Greek rendering of it, the name Joshua means that Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. The Lord, the Lord is salvation. And so Jesus' name uh, is linked directly to the name of God and the special work of God in bringing deliverance and salvation. Now, it's not as if uh, sometimes a mere man will have this name Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus. Obviously, we know that from the Old Testament. 
The famous Joshua, who was the successor of Moses, was a mere man, an ordinary man like you and me, and yet he was named Joshua. His name meant the Lord is salvation. And yet here, when we piece together all of the data points that are going on in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John, we know that Jesus is, in fact, not a mere man. Look at, look at the interpretive uh, verses in ver- verses 22 and 23. It says, this is after the angel's word to, the, to, to Joseph, and now the, the, the narrator is telling us something, the reader. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you can, you can just see the, the parallel from verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In verse 23, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, or God is with us. And we know that the divine word, John chapter 1, the divine word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself is with us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself eternally divine. And so when, when, you, when you put all that together, what it's revealing is that Jesus is Yahweh, your God, who has drawn near to you in order to bring salvation. Therein lies the significance of the name Jesus. The Lord truly has come. Let's go to the third point. So a son is born, the son is named, and then the son's name reveals the son's mission. And I want to to camp out here a little bit. You You can see the connection that the angel specifically makes between the name Jesus and its, its meaning. It says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he, will, for he will save. You see? For he will save, for he will deliver, for he will rescue. But there's a couple questions that we need to ask that the text itself answers, and so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what those questions are, and then we'll walk through this. The first question is, who does Jesus save? And then the second question is, what does he save those people from? So, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Who who shall Jesus save? His people. Now, if you wanted to, you could just go to your memory bank of Holy Scripture and come up with, well, what, okay, well, how would, you, how would you define his people? Or maybe you could open up a systematic theology textbook and who, who are his people? It's interesting because what this is communicating to us is that Jesus did not come in order to save everybody. He didn't come to save everybody. Not everybody gets saved. He, he's saving his people. He's not saving those who are not his people. Well, what's, what's the What's the, what's the dif- differentiation between those who are his people and those who are not his people? And I, I think uh, when, I, when I come across a question like that, it's helpful to just see, well, this is the beginning of the book of Matthew. How does the book of Matthew 
As it unfolds, how does the book of Matthew differentiate those who are his people from those who are not his people? And so here's a few things you will find if you were to do that with the book of Matthew. For example, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist says, referring to Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. His wheat, representing his people in the context of Matthew 3, 1 through 12, his wheat, his people are those who confess their sins and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The chaff are those who remain in their sin. In, in uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 49 and 50, the, 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 the context of that is that Jesus' family members, his mother and brothers, they're, they're, they're coming to see him. These are, his, these are the members of Jesus' you know, his, his, his natural family. But Jesus says, who, are, who, are my, who, are, who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who are Jesus' people? Who are Jesus' family? Those who draw near to Jesus in order to do the will of his Father. Those who don't do the will of the Father, Jesus makes clear in Matthew chapter 7, he will say to them on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, Jesus' people are characterized by actually, they actually come after him. They, they take up their cross. They deny themselves. They follow him, whereas those who are not his people prefer to do life their own way, to remain in charge of their own lives, to be their own saviors. And then in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, Jesus pictures this great scene of final judgment. And on that day of judgment, he separates the sheep from the goats. His, his sheep, those are his people, the sheep. And the sheep are characterized by they, they so believed in the Lord Jesus that they demonstrated their loyalty to Jesus by showing compassion and care for Jesus's disciples. Whereas the goats, the wicked, those who don't belong to him, the goats are characterized by they demonstrated their unbelief by not showing compassion and care for Jesus's people. So, so these are some of the ways in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus's people are differentiated from those who are not his people. And, and all of that, it, 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 underneath all of that, is the sovereignty of God. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 13, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Who, who are Jesus' people? Those who've been planted by the Father. And, and that kind of links up with in, in Matthew 13 in the parable of the weeds. Jesus is likened to the Son of Man who sows good seed. And in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the good seed is actually the sons of the kingdom 
who inherit the kingdom, whereas the devil comes and he sows bad seed. Those are the sons of the evil one who, who get cast into everlasting fire. So, so listen, this, this, is, this is remarkably good news, right? There, 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 there's no better news. He will save his people. Make sure you are among that number through faith in his name. Now, let's go to the, 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 the last question. What does he save his people from? And this is really interesting, and, and you, may, you may have had a little uh, like question mark go off in your head as I was walking through the, 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 the differentiation between those who are Jesus' people and those who are not his people. Because it, so, it sounds like... Uh, Sounds like, well, his, his, people are, his people are pretty good. <laughs> but but, but you, you would have missed something crucial, okay? The, the difference between Jesus' people and those who are not his people is not the presence or absence of sin. Every human being without exception, except for Jesus, the God-man, every human being is caught up in sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, every human being has spectacularly missed the mark. Instead of faith in God, unbelief. Instead of love for the Lord and love for other people, selfishness and greed. And instead of holy conduct and righteousness from the heart, evil. Conduct in, in Matthew 15, G Jesus told us that, that what makes us defiled and unclean is not is not the the contaminants that come at us from the outside. What defiles us and makes us unclean is all the all the sin and the evil that rises up from within us out of our own hearts. And every human being is 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 beset by that sinful condition. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The, the real difference between those who are Jesus' people and those who are not his people is that his people are actually redeemed and rescued and lifted out of their sin, whereas those who are not his people remain in it and perish in it. But I want you, I want you to think about the glory of this good news, because we have this natural desire to get temporary relief from our worldly troubles. Right? Israel wanted to be delivered from the power of Rome. The poor would like to be delivered from their poverty. The, the sick would like to be delivered from their diseases. This is, this, is, this is the way that human beings no normally think. When, when, the, when the disciples were with Jesus on the boat in the stormy sea, they wanted to be delivered from the great storm that had fallen upon them. But Jesus, Jesus didn't come mainly to deliver us from those things. Of course, he is able to deliver us from any issue at all. He, 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 can, he can deliver us from anything. But his focus is on delivering us from our sin. Jesus knew that we had a far greater problem than unpleasant circumstances. 
temporary troubles. And for example, in Matthew 5.30, Jesus said, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then in Matthew 13, verses 40 to 43, Jesus said, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The the stakes could not be any higher. Jesus didn't come in order to give us a little pick-me-up or a little pep talk. He, He foresaw grave danger on the horizon for every sinner who remained in his or her sin. He, he, saw, he foresaw the danger of a great storm coming upon the children of men. And only those who had come to Jesus and heard his words and put those words into practice, only that, them would remain strong and withstand the coming judgment. For he will save his people from their sins. Means that Jesus saves his people from the guilt of their sin. Jesus said to the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that was the very thing that Jesus called attention to at the Last Supper on the eve of his crucifixion in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28. It says, And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus saves his people from their sins by becoming a sacrifice of atonement in their place. And he lays down his life. His body is broken and his blood is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he forgives our sins, he he forgives us completely. The guilt is taken away. The debt is cleared. And we are fully and completely reconciled to the Father. For he will save his people from their sins also means that Jesus saves his people from the power of sin. As you read through the book of Matthew, it's obvious that Jesus didn't envision simply forgiving people of their sin and then leaving them to themselves to more or less continue down the path of more sinning. No, Jesus is He's shepherding us and teaching us out of the way of sin and bringing us onto that path of righteousness that leads to life. Jesus knows that without him we are harassed and helpless like lost sheep. But Jesus is the 
the good shepherd that has compassion upon us. Jesus knows that left to ourselves, we are weary and heavy laden. And yet he comes and says to us, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the transformed life that Jesus calls us to live, which is so well articulated by him for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus, Jesus didn't set forth his expectations for us with the idea that we would just take those instructions in our own wisdom and strength and put them into practice. No. First of all, we, we, are, we are forgiven and reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. And then we, we come into this tight fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in which he gives us his very own spirit to strengthen us. And it's, it's, it's out of that renewed relationship with the Father and out of the, the strength that he's giving us from the very insides that he enables us to actually take concrete steps on the path of obedience. He, he doesn't want to deliver us only from the power, only from the, only from the, the, the guilt of sin, but he also wants to deliver us from its power. Now, I don't know, I don't know where all of you stand with the Lord this morning, but I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're kind of wondering, well, am I, am I, am I, am I his people? Am I among his people? Or am I man on the outside. Like, I just want to encourage you very simply to entrust yourself to the Lord. There's these wonderful expressions, very simple expressions of faith as you read through the book of Matthew. For example, sinners are unclean like the leper in Matthew chapter 8 who said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Sinners are in a far worse predicament than the disciples in Matthew chapter 8 who were frightened amid the stormy sea, and they cried out, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Sinners are like the, the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9 who cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Sinners are in dire straits like the demon-possessed girl in Matthew chapter 15 whose mother cried out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely depressed by a demon. And moments later, she came and knelt before the Lord saying, Lord, help me. Coming to Jesus is not complicated. There's not a bunch of hoops or protocols or checklists. It's simple. It's, it's you recognize your need for him. Lord, help me. Have mercy on me, son of David. You can make me clean. For those of you who have the joy of knowing that you are 
part of his people. And you hear that, for he will save his people from their sins. You hear that as the best possible news. And I just want to encourage you to live in that reality. Don't live in all the, all the noise of the bad news and the fears that are swirling around you, but live in the sweet spot of God's good news to you that he has redeemed you through his son. He has reconciled you and brought you into fellowship with himself. And now, even now, he's empower, empowering you and transforming you to live a holy life. And then, as we, in just a moment, are going to sing one more Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I want you to think about how well that Christmas hymn captures the truth of which we have reflected on this morning. Salvation from sin is about God and sinners reconciled. And who brings this reconciliation about? It's the utterly unique God-man, Christ, the everlasting Lord, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And why did the divine Lord clothe himself with human flesh? Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. A son has been given. His name is Jesus telling us that the Lord himself has drawn near to his sinful people in order to save them from their sins. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enable us to keep this good news at the very center of our heart and mind and life and home. Father, we thank you that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, when we were in the valley of the deep darkness of our own sin, that you did not write us off, but you came near, that you sent your dear son in order to lift us out. Just pray that you would sustain us strengthen us, transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.